Welcome to Marketing Thought Leadership, the podcast that offers insightful discussions on thought-provoking marketing topics. Here's the host of our show, marketing consultant, speaker, author, and educator, and the president of L2M Associates, Linda Popke. Hi, this is Linda Popke, and welcome to our latest episode of Marketing Thought Leadership. We're here today with Seth Kahn, who is widely recognized as being on the forefront of visionary leadership, which is the title of his brand-new book. He's a trusted advisor to over 100 CEOs, a sought-after business strategy specialist, a respected thought leader, and he is the convener of grand challenges. In addition, he's written several business bestsellers, including Getting Change Right and Getting Innovation Right. His book, The Strategic Foresight Playbook, came out this year, and he's got two books coming out next year, The Underexplored Core of Association Strategy and Grand Challenge, How Leaders Grow Their Businesses by Addressing the World's Most Intractable Problems. Wow, lots of books in there. So welcome, Seth. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with, because uh, you've got so many things going on here, but let's start with visionary leadership. What exactly is visionary leadership, and why is it so important that we focus on that? Visionary leadership is about using your organization's growth as a way to address some of society's most intractable problems. So this is about leaders who go above and beyond just growing their organization, putting everything in order, and successfully delivering value through either mission impact if you're a nonprofit or profits if you are a for-profit organization, and focusing your efforts on attacking something that's relevant to your mission that makes the world a better place. I love it. Can you give us some examples? Like who would be a great example of, of an organization that's doing that? Well, one of my favorite examples is the XPRIZE. Uh, oh. Every XPRIZE is dedicated to puncturing one of the limits of humanity and rewarding the people who are able to do it with usually a really large cash prize like $10 million. That's one of my favorite examples. All right. Is there anything on a little bit smaller scale? If, you know, we weren't didn't have $10 million to give away? Sure, there is. And, in fact, all of my work is done with associations, with professional societies right. and trade associations, and they tend to be smaller organizations. Um, and a lot of the work that they do in the Grand Challenge space, which is one of the areas that I focus on, is about making a contribution in their sphere of influence. So, for example, the American Nurses Association is taking on the health of America's nurses. We have 3.6 million nurses in this country, and their health in every category except for smoking is worse than the average Americans. So yes. they have a grand challenge called Healthy Nurse, Healthy Nation. Uh, that's an example that's on a much smaller scale. Oh, exactly, too. They're so busy taking care of us, they forget to take care of themselves. It's yes. so true. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, and I want to get to the grand challenge in a minute, but first tell me what are the core competencies of visionary leaders? How do we know when we see a, a visionary leader kind of that, that that's what they're doing? Yeah. So there's, uh, I've identified 12 of them based on my personal diagnostics and working with over 100 organizations, and I've divided them into three categories. There's personal power. There's organizational leadership, and for me, that's association leadership. And then mm -hmm. there's market acumen. So in other words, understanding how you influence and how you transform the world, understanding how your organization needs to be led in order to participate in a larger ecosystem, 
and then understanding the market so that you can see the opportunities. Excellent. And are there, again, can you give us an example of CEOs that stand out as good examples of, of being visionary leaders maybe in those different areas? Sure. So, like, um, with the American Nurses Association, I had the good fortune to work with Marla Weston while she was the executive director of the ANA, and she's a perfect example of a visionary leader. One of the competencies under personal power is intentional self-transformation. I have four competencies under each of these three categories. And intentional self-transformation is really about jumping into the deep end of the swimming pool before you know if you can swim. And that's something that Marla does really well. In fact, a lot of CEOs do that. They're used to taking on really big challenges where they don't understand all the details of how to operationalize them. Wow. So that's, a, so that's an example. Do you have any others that you can tell us as well? Perhaps yeah, some of the sure. other competencies? Um, um, so, uh, so let's just take a look, at, for example, at the four competencies that come under personal power. So there's yep. intentional self-transformation. There's um, storytelling. Storytelling yep. is, you know, what, it has been caught currency in the last 10 or 15 years, uh, and stories are one of the most effective ways to get messages to carry quickly without you having to propagate them. Um, right. And then there's the inverse of storytelling, which is story listening. So learning how to hear from people's life experience, what are the most salient points and what is it you need to be aware of to act upon. And then the fourth area in personal power is radical self-care. Because if you're going to be exerting yourself, pushing your own envelope on an ongoing basis, you need to understand how to refuel and renew so that you're fresh, so that you're clear-sighted. So those are four competencies under the personal power category. So, you know, storytelling, you're right, I've heard a lot about this. This has kind of got some cachet. People are telling about how much we need to tell stories, which makes sense. It's so much easier to remember a story. But story listening is something a little different. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, because I, I think all of us are talking too much and not listening enough. But what's the secret to really being competent at story listening? Well, you just said it. We're all talking too much and not <laughs> listening enough. Um, and, you know, all of the best leaders that I know are outstanding at listening. They not only interface with their stakeholders, whether it's the public or their staff or partners or the board of directors, but they do a really good job of ferreting out the concerns of people and understanding other people's point of view, which is huge, right? So many people come at things very differently. And when you have multiple stakeholders, multiple partners in a particular project, you really need to be able to see it through their eyes to make sure that the value that you're creating is something that they appreciate, that they find compelling. So story listening is really about putting yourself in another person's shoes. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to see it the same way they do. Right. But you need to have an empathetic response. That makes sense, yeah. And I think too much, too, too many times people are thinking, gee, if I listen to that, that means I'm agreeing with everything they're saying. But it sounds, what you're saying, which makes sense to me, is that I don't necessarily need you to agree with me. I just want to make sure you hear and understand where I'm coming from. Right. And one of the, one of the metaphors that I'll use is Sherlock Holmes. You know, mm. Sherlock Holmes is an outstanding listener, right? He's known yep. for hearing things that nobody else hears because he's paying right. so much attention. And yet, obviously, he doesn't agree with the people he's listening to because some of them have committed crimes. So he's just doing a really good job of listening. Excellent, excellent. So this sounds like this is something that all CEOs should do. If, if maybe they don't, but they should. Is visionary leadership for everyone, or is it really kind of it, it, there's a subsegment of the population that really should be visionary leaders? 
I think there's a subset of the population. And, uh, of course, I would love it if every CEO wanted to be a visionary leader. But yep. uh, there are many who are just not interested. You know, they're, they have a very clear focus on delivering on the bottom line, uh, and that's it. That's all they, they want to do. So a visionary leader really has, you know, the better interests of humanity in mind and is asking the question, what's the unique value that my organization or my people provide and how can we leverage that to make the world a better place? I think that the way to tell if somebody has what it takes to be a visionary leader is to see if they're inspired or inclined to pursue that, just because in my experience there's so many CEOs who are not. Mm. And, and do you think your organizations are, are hurting because of that, or do you think it's possible that some organizations just can go out and, and do the day-to-day stuff and be fine? In other words, is there a whole kind of opportunity for humanity that we're missing because we don't have so many visionary leaders? You know, I think it's fine for organizations to provide value and just stop there if they've got a good value proposition and they're really good at delivering it. Um, okay. But for me personally, um, you know, there's – it makes such a huge difference in my life to be doing work that I find personally meaningful. And that is the promise of visionary leadership. And I think organizations or leaders who bypass that, who really are not looking for personal fulfillment to be a component of the workplace or a component of the mission of the organization, they're actually setting their sights on a lower standard. And um, so I, I think that the organizations are not rising to the potential they're capable of, but at the same time, uh, if you're delivering a basic function or service and that's where you're comfortable, then I don't see an issue with it. Okay, so so it could be some versus others. And I would think this is a way to keep employees motivated and, and feel like they're in the right place doing the right thing as well, right? Because they see this bigger picture as well. Absolutely. If you have employees who are uh, above survival level, then mm-hmm. this is key. If, if your employees are just trying to survive, if, they're, if the wages that they're earning are just putting food on their table and paying their rent and nothing more than that, then they probably are not going to be uh, that concerned as to whether or not the organization is doing something for the greater good. But if they are above that level, research shows that being part of a larger effort uh, to do something noble is, uh, is, is super important to the employee's satisfaction. So it's sort of like um, we go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you got to get, you know, shelter and food and and et cetera, that's really important. But once you get above that, this is where this becomes something that that really people get passionate about. That's right. And there's two books in the market that are not mine, which have really hit the nail on the head in that regard. <laughs> One is Lisa McLeod's Noble Purpose, Selling for Noble yep. Purpose, and the other is Dan Pink's Drive, and they both discuss this in some detail. Yeah, and I've read both of them, and, yeah, I was thinking about them as you were saying that. So that's great. So I want to talk a little bit about grand challenges because you talk about that, and I'm not sure everyone listening understands what you mean by a grand challenge. So tell us a little bit of what is a grand challenge and, you know, kind of how does that whole thing work? Well, a grand challenge is where you really do take the world's biggest problems and try and turn them to your advantage by making a positive difference, by uh, acting as the backbone organization that pulls together other organizations and activists and focuses on an intractable issue. For example, the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards provides uh, certification for CFPs, one of the Mm -hmm. uh, most esteemed financial certifications that there is. Um, But they have become aware through their partners, their members, their constituents, that 
in the finance profession, there's a real shortage of women and people of color. In uh-huh. fact, I think I think the, cap, the the percentage is something like there's more uh, people over the age of 70 than under the age of 30 in the financial planning profession. Wow. Um, and the big companies, Prudential, TD Ameritrade, Northwestern Mutual, Morgan Stanley, they know this is a problem. They see a talent crisis looming. And they also know that they're not serving all of America. And, of course, in this day and age with technology and everything, you know, serving the long tail uh, is a legitimate business strategy. Sure. It used to be that financial professionals only wanted people who had at least $100,000 worth of discretionary income to invest. But now that they can figure out how to leverage technology to serve so many more, they want to start serving people who have a lot less than that. And so they're trying to recruit women and people of color to move into the planning part, and they've been failing abysmally. So CFP Board of Standards created something called the Center for Financial Planning that has as its mission to bring women and people of color into the workforce and conduct research so that we understand how to serve these populations. Um, And that's an example of an organization now that's taking its key mission, which is to ensure that uh, people have, uh, you know, uh, uh, what do I say, expert financial planners right. uh, to serve them, and leveraging that to help the finance profession draw on uh, America's demographics to stock its talent and to serve people better. So that, that's, a, that's definitely a noble purpose. It sounds like some of these grand challenges are very, they are grand, therefore they're big multi-year efforts. Is that, I presume these are not things that you can do very quickly. It's, it's going to take a long time. Um, does yes, that make sense? Fact, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's not even helpful to think of them as a project because some of them don't even have end dates. I mean, bringing women and people of color into a right. primarily, you know, pale male stale environment is going to take a long time. Uh, making America's nurses healthy may not ever have an end. Um, of course, there's a swell up front where you hope to make a lot of progress and see major impact. But once you've committed millions of dollars, uh, lots of talent, staff, years into a particular space, you have the opportunity to own that space, which means that it can become a core function of the organization. Wow. Wow. So this is really something you, you have to think about and make sure that you're aligned with before you dive in. And, and then you have to be visionary. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And that, and that means that you have to take risks and you have to go into territory that a lot of people are uncomfortable being in because you're trying to do something that nobody's ever done before. Just like kind of the Star Trek and, thing. You know, go where yeah, no one's gone Trek. before. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I'm a Trekkie. If you look at the cover <laughs> of my new book, in the upper left-hand corner, tiny, 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 but big enough to see, you'll see uh, – member of the uh, a starship from the federation it's not the uss enterprise but it's definitely a uh, a starship from the federation i love it i'm gonna have to go look at the cover everybody go look at the cover <laughs> it's like an easter egg on the cover of my book right absolutely i love it that's fantastic so one more question you talk about real-time strategy what is real-time strategy because if we're thinking long term and these big grand challenges it's almost saying real-time strategy is kind of the opposite of that yeah how does that fit in Real-time strategy uh, has to do with living in a world that's constantly being disrupted and being able to turn on a dime with the overarching strategy of the organization or the organization's components. And I first learned about this uh, in conversation with a senior leader at Hewlett-Packard who talked to me about real-time strategy. Actually, that was in 2000 and 
2014. I'm trying to think. When, no, was it 2010 when the iPad came out, right? Okay. 2010, yep. 14 million iPads were sold in like 10 months, and we changed right. the printing industry forever. Um, I was talking with the guy who was head of graphic design, which was a multi-billion dollar arm of Hewlett Packard, and he was telling me about real-time strategy. And he said, my people are out on the front lines, and they get new information that has an impact on our business's overarching game plan for growth, and we need to incorporate that impact instantly. We don't want to wait until we have a strategic planning session. That could be one year, two years, three years off. And, in fact, we don't want to wait at all. If we, can, if we can figure out how to do it, we want to be able to integrate the new information so that we can act on it right away. And that really caught my ear. And I started, you know, at first I really didn't understand it. I thought, how can you change the overarching game plan of a huge organization right. on, and turn on a dime like that? But as I started looking at how we identify emerging trends, uh, I started to understand that some of these trends – it becomes very clear, like today you could talk about autonomous cars or AI. Those are trends that are going to be around for a while. We may not fully understand them yet. They may not be fully integrated or operationalized, but they're here to stay. And so right. any organization that's in, the, in a space where AI could make a real difference, it, it, it's, they're beholden to understand the nuances of that and to be tuning their strategy as new information comes in. So it sounds like, on one hand, you've got these grand challenges that are multi-year long, maybe decades-long type of, of um, very grand and, and very important types of things. But as a visionary leader, you also have to be ready to take information that's coming in quickly and be able to digest it and move quickly. So it's a combination of thinking short-term and long-term at once. Very well said, Linda. Okay, good. Yeah. Excellent. So we're talking here with Seth Kahn. Seth is the author of a brand-new book on visionary leadership, and he's also the author of a number of other books. Seth, if people wanted to find out more about your books, where would they go? Well, you can uh, go to Amazon, obviously, or you can go to my yep. website, which is visionaryleadership.com, and you can uh, take a look at the books, drop-down menu, and you can find all four of my books there. And as new ones come out, uh, new ones will be placed there. I, I do want to make an offer to your listeners, though, um, oh, a special offer, and that is that if you would like it, I will send you the full PDF of my latest book, Visionary Leadership, for free. All you oh, need wow. to do is write me, Seth at VisionaryLeadership.com, and request the PDF of Visionary Leadership, and I'll pop it in the email right back to you, and you can have the whole book for free instantly. That's fantastic. That's a wonderful. That's a wonderful offer. So, and besides reading your book, if I'm in an organization and I want to get this started, this whole process started, what is the first thing that I should do to kind of get my organization, get my team thinking in this bigger visionary direction? Well, I would take a look at other grand challenges. I would just Google grand challenge. There's some great videos from the UCLA Department of Grand Challenges. I'm good friends with the director there, Michelle Popowitz. And they did a video, oh, I want to say it goes all the way back to, like, 2007. It's still on YouTube. That's uh, only six or seven minutes long, and it describes the very beginning of their grand challenge. They have two. One of them is to make Los Angeles sustainable in energy and water by the year 2050. And uh -huh. the six- or seven-minute video they have is outstanding. I would, I would share that with my executive team or my board of directors and just use it to launch a conversation. And then ask the question, if we were to do a grand challenge, you know, what kind of ideas do you have? And I would just start with kind of stimulating conversations and seeing where it goes. 
That's fantastic. That's great. That's a great place to be. And leave it to UCLA to have a Department of Grand Challenges. Who would have guessed? <laughs> Who would have guessed? Yeah. That's great. So, again, we're talking here with Seth Kahn. Seth is the author of the brand-new book about visionary leadership and a number of other bestsellers. As he just told us, if you'd like to get a PDF of his book, email him at Seth at VisionaryLeadership.com. Um, it's fantastic. I would love to, you know, to, to find out more about this, and I just think it's such a, a wonderful thing to do. There's so much negativity in the world right now, but to see people who are taking on grand challenges and helping humanity is just very refreshing. It's, it's also a great way to market thought leadership, since that's the topic of your yep. podcast. I just wanted to Absolutely. raise that. Um, when you get involved with grand challenges, it really puts you out on the forefront. Of course, you so that you're, you know, you're, you're splashing in a good way, that you're sharing good news with people. But once you've made the commitment and built the foundation, uh, it really positions you among your peers and among your other partners as a thought leader. And the, the, just the action of leading the grand challenge is a form of marketing. It's marketing internally for staff or members if you're an association. It says this is an organization that is out front, that's leading, that's relevant, that is part of the future. And it's great marketing externally because it gives positive press. People turn their heads when they hear about an organization that's really making a difference out in the world. So I wanted to be sure and mention that angle. It's one of the major benefits of doing a grand challenge. That's fantastic. So not only are we helping the world, but we're helping to position ourselves as thought leaders, which is what a lot of us as marketers are trying to do on a daily basis. That's fantastic. Big, yeah, big time. Um, the, another grand challenge that I love to mention is uh, Susan Neely, when she was the CEO of the American Beverage Association, brought together Coke, Dr. Pepper, and Pepsi to uh, lower the sugar available in vending machines in elementary schools across the United States. And they did it in three years, and they lowered it by over 90%, um, wow. which is just amazing. And when Michelle Obama was leading her campaign on lowering childhood obesity, there was only one association leader who joined her on the dais, and that was Susan Neely. And that, again, when you talk about marketing thought leadership, that opportunity to be present and to be part of that forward thrust into doing positive good in our world uh, is an extremely valuable asset to an organization. That is fantastic, and it's good for the world, too, which is, in, in the right. long run, um, very important as well. So thank you, Seth. Um, fantastic. Uh, we could talk about this for hours, but I think we've given people some good information and where to go, and we appreciate you being here and sharing some of these challenges with us. Thank you for having me, Linda. I admire your work a lot, and it's a real pleasure to be on a podcast that's about marketing thought leadership. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This, is, uh, this has been, again, another episode of Marketing Thought Leadership. Until next time, um, thank you for listening. This is Linda Popke. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Marketing Thought Leadership, brought to you by L2M Associates. If you'd like to find out how you can improve the return on your investment in marketing programs, processes, or people, contact us at www.l2massociates.com.